This is Women in a Day, a podcast created to give a deep look at the daily lives of women of all kinds, from sunrise to sunset, with Jenny Hauser and Portia Hensley. Welcome to episode 23 of Women in a Day podcast. Today I'm joined by Portia Hensley and our guest, Amanda Berg Wilson, co founder and artistic director of the Catamounts. Amanda Berg Wilson is a native Texan, a Kenyan College alumna, a former Chicagoan, and the co founder and artistic director of the Catamounts. With the Catamounts, she's directed 12 productions, including God's Ear, Failure, A Love Story, and Roush. And she's performed as Ellen in There is a Happiness That Morning Is and Warrior Number One in Beowulf, A Thousand Years of Baggage. In eight years, she's built the Catamounts to one of Colorado's most fierce theater companies, tackling progressive work no one else in the region is brave enough to take on. She's a Pratt wife to Ben, the coolest attorney bass player west of (laughs) the Mississippi, and she's the mother of Eloise, a tall, talkative, delightful, soon-to-be 11-year-old whose proud ambition is to be a triple threat. Welcome, Amanda. Thanks, y'all. It's nice to be here. So when you say that you're taking on things that no one is brave enough, and you also said or dumb enough to do, (laughs) tell us what, what that means. Well... I moved back to Colorado nine years ago from having spent a decade in Chicago. And I always say that my decade in Chicago was my grad school because before I lived there, uh, most of the theater that I had been exposed to was fairly traditional. So even if it was a contemporary play, it was telling a story in a fairly traditional way, um, mainly through realism. So the things that were taking place up on stage were in facsimile to real life, you know, a living room set or a hospital. And then I moved to Chicago and my whole concept of what theater could do was totally exploded. You know, I saw plays that were surreal, that were taking place on submarines or in the mind of the characters or just through movement and music and you know everything that they were doing Chicago was essentially exploring all of the different ways that theater could be theatrical so when I moved back here I wanted to bring that decade of just having all my neurons rearranged uh, here to Colorado because even 10 years ago most of the theater that was being produced here was was fairly realistic. And a lot of that kind of theater is very risk-taking. You know, it's asking the audience to be able to learn a vocabulary of how this play is going to work on its own terms. You know, most people go to theater and they sort of think that they the story is going to be told in a way that they're used to stories being told. Like you a know. linear, familiar. Linear is a great way of putting it. Like, And with language that is similar to how we speak, if, you know, a little elevated, um, with uh, settings that are familiar. But the work that the Catamounts do um, asks each time for the audience to sort of relearn the, what the storytelling rules are going to be. Um, and it's... Sometimes a, a really big ask, you know, yeah. we've done 
we did a piece called Mr. Burns, a post-apocalyptic play, and it was set in a <laughs> in a post-apocalyptic society where every the grid had sort of failed in the United States because of a virus that had passed through and killed most of the population. So there's no more electricity because the people who sort of control the electrical grid have all died. And there becomes this whole way that the sort of folks who are left after the apocalypse just retell Simpsons episodes as a way of <laughs> I love it. entertaining I didn't want to get my hopes up when you said Mr. Burns, <laughs> no. but I was like, I really hope that's where this is headed. <laughs> exactly. And so that's the first act is this group of survivors literally retelling a Simpsons episode. The middle act is 10 years in the future where they've become these roving bands of performers and that's Mm -hmm. how people entertain themselves and then the third act is this weird like almost kabuki style opera where they (laughs) where they've basically sort of merged this one simpsons episode and um the history of what's happened in the apocalypse and they and the whole thing sung so that's just an you know and when we decided to do it we called the rights holder and they were like yeah, we thought that somebody in Colorado would just pounce on this because it was this huge hit throughout the United States. But it it was a crazy piece to take oh, on. And we took it on. And, you know, I the thing about our risk-taking is that we don't always hit it out of the park because we really are doing work that is hard, that it has yeah. its own rules. And essentially, every production, we're kind of reteaching ourselves how to integrate what we do well into a new you know new set of demands of the yeah. piece so yeah and you know when I say you know nobody else is brave enough it sounds a little uh conceited not conceited but a little sort of self-important and I, I don't mean it in that way as much as I just think that um, and any good arts ecology, there is that company that's like, yeah, I'll be, we'll be the ones who are kind of out there on the edge. And that's, that's really who I want this company to be and who I think that, that for the last eight years we, we have been. So, so it's, it's about bravery, but it's also about just a willingness to fail, frankly. Yeah. And it seems like a lot of big theater companies, maybe they do things that, you know, it's like, we do the standards Mm -hmm. and then we sprinkle those things in Mm -hmm. and that's just not your model that you're working with. No, it's consistently. Yeah. And there's a lot of bigger theater companies here, you know, the Denver center or curious theater, the Arvada center, they do new work. So it's not that they're just doing, you know, death Mm -hmm. of a salesman and Shakespeare, but the new work that they do is on some level, you you know, the, the point of entry for the audience is, is fairly easy yeah and I just don't know that the point of entry for our audience is always <laughs> easy and, and we're not experimental I think in kind of a an alienating way yeah. we're not we, we still try to make the work pretty accessible but you know it does it does require a certain amount of just willingness to be a little bit at sea yeah for, and then I think the nice thing is is that we've sort of trained our audiences to to expect the unexpected mm-hmm. and so then now I think they're okay with having their expectations subverted and they're excited for about wherever that piece is willing to go. So is that all you do, non-traditional theater? That's, yeah. That's your shtick. It is. Yeah. It's a, yeah, yeah. And and hopefully, you know, not to, to be sort of fussy about the language, like hopefully not a, 
a shtick as much as a mission, okay. you know? Yeah. And um, Do you have a mission? We do. And it's um, it's essentially to, uh, to we, that we believe in the constant reinvention of artistic forms and that American theater basically needs to be continually reinvented. Mm-hmm. And so that's why we search out pieces from around the country that are, are willing to to present some kind of new iteration of what theater can do. Is this what you always wanted to do? Because it's one thing to be in theater, but to be a founder and an artistic director, how did you land there? It's a really good question. I mean, I think I started out as an actor, like a lot of people in theater do. And I very quickly would be in rehearsal processes where I was like, I feel like I would like to, you know, not that I knew better, but I just always <laughs> I, I just I just was you know what the the beautiful thing about actors is that part of their job is a willingness to go along with the vision of the director. Mm-hmm. And there's this whole spectrum for like how actors are invited to participate in that process. You know, sometimes you're just like paint, right? You're the yeah. paint of the painter who's the director and you basically do what they say and you sort of have no input. And then there are directors who are much more collaborative. And I think, frankly, that's the smarter way to be a director yeah. because actors have good instincts and they are the ones who are up on the stage in the space. But I just, I don't know, I've always been kind of, um, I come from a family of independent folks. Like my dad is always sort of, he's an attorney, he's always had his own firms and my mother has always kind of done her own thing. And I just think... I, from an early um, part of my career, wanted to have a little more autonomy and I guess control. There's nothing wrong with that, right? Like I just wanted to have more artistic control. Um, And it's funny because I had a mentor in college, a woman named Harleen Marley, who is now no longer, no longer on the planet, sadly, because she was fabulous. But she told my mother, my mother came to see me in a production at Mm -hmm. Kenyon and she said, Amanda's a really good actor, but really what I think she is is a director. And at, like, 20, I was like, ah. Was that, that was hard to hear? Oh, I just, I hated it. I was yeah. like, no. Because I think is it from a young age, you think that being an actor is yeah. where all the glory is. And so it took me some years to kind of move away from that sense of wanting to be an actor. Yeah. When but did you realize that you yeah. were a director? Oh, that's a good question. I mean, I think the, my my first sort of um, full length piece that I directed was when I was in my late twenties, late twenties in Chicago, and I had started an interdisciplinary company there called Striding Lion, with my childhood best friend who is a dancer choreographer, oh, wow. and with um, my husband who. is was a full time musician, and with her husband at the time who was a full time musician. So we were looking for this way to collaborate across disciplines. Oh, that's fascinating. And um, I directed a production of Sam Shepard's Cowboy Mouth. And that piece was actually, so Sam Shepard and Patti Smith had an affair while Mm -hmm. Sam uh, Shepard was married. Um, And they basically wrote this piece about sort of their relationship. And I've She's like, you know, one of my idols. And every January, I re listen to a Patti Smith audiobook. I just, oh, do you, to, to the uh, us kids? What is it? Us, us, uh, just as the just as kids. Just as kids. God, yeah. Man. It's, 
Yeah. Isn't that just the best? It She's is. the coolest. She is. It's a fun little January tradition. Like, oh, really I moody love and that. <laughs> it is right. The New York in the seventies yeah. are just like one of those times. If I had a time machine, I would go back and be like, "Yes, Jesse Hotel." Mm-hmm. Although it was a little probably grittier than we romanticized. We definitely, as. yeah. So anyway, I directed that piece, and and because it's kind of about sort of, you know, Sam Shepard always said that. If he had been any good at music, he wouldn't have been a playwright. He had a band, and he was always trying to integrate rock and roll into his plays. And mm-hmm. so we had a live band that kind of played uh, both at the beginning of the piece and then throughout. And there was something about that production. I got a you know a great little review, and people really responded to it. And I all of a sudden, there's just something about that first moment when you you really hit your artistic voice Mm -hmm. and I still had so much to learn after that but there was something about kind of having a concept putting it into play and then seeing it be successful that I was like oh maybe yeah and frankly like I never liked the whole auditioning process like the whole sort of self-promotion like as my body and face and voice and space just sort of never it just the really good actors I know who are really successful are really lean into that like they like to audition they get excited about themselves as an instrument where they say like racking up the nose you know you have to rack up those nose before you get a yes yeah yeah I think you either you're okay with that or you're not. Yeah. And I just wasn't. I didn't like that idea of having to have other people's permission to make a work of art. So from that point on, did you do only directing or did you kind of mix it in? No. The funny thing is that, um, you know, every once in a while, someone would reach out to me and say, will you come audition for this? And I, I never said no to those opportunities. And then I would get work that way. And actually, the cool thing is that So now I have done some freelance work at some of the bigger theaters in town at Curious Theater Company at the Denver Center. And my point of entry to those organizations was as an actor. Oh, interesting. Um, So I did, and the Denver Center has an experimental wing called Off Center, and they did an immersive theater production called Sweet and Lucky um, that was this just wild uh, 16,000 square foot warehouse built out where over the course of two hours, 72 audience members go through the piece, but in different small groups and like groups of four and eight. And and actually there's a a one moment in which it's just you and the actor, you, the audience member and the actor. Um, Yeah. And I was a part of that cast, the original cast, and then part of the extension and from that, I then directed their next immersive piece. So the cool thing was, is that I don't know that I would have gotten that foot in the door if it hadn't been as an actor. Mm. So, and, and frankly, you know, I, I, you read in my bio, I've done a couple of pieces with the Catamounts. It's, it's a little bit like a vacation now when I get to be an actor. So, show, tell me what time to be there. Yeah, tell me, I gotta just worry about what I do on yeah. stage. Great, I'm on it, you know, so... Um, so yeah, I haven't totally parted with that aspect of things, but I do it more as 
either an you know, when there's an opportunity to collaborate with a new organization. It's also, I think, a really good reminder to me about how vulnerable you are as an actor. Mm -hmm. It gives, I think it makes me a better director because I remember, you know, you're, you're ultimately the director is asking you to do things that in the end, it'll be you up there doing, not the director. So I try to, I try to keep that in mind, especially when I'm in this space where maybe I'm having um, a difficult time communicating with an actor mm-hmm. instead of sort of digging in and feeling like, oh, why aren't, why can't you do what I'm asking you to do? I remember about how sometimes that's really hard to, it's really hard to do. Yeah. You know? So. Yeah. Chicago seems like a huge epicenter for theater, especially. So what mm-hmm. made you leave? Oh, that's a good question. Um, it's funny, as a side note right now, I have my, we're opening, the Catamounts are opening a show on February 16th called United Flight 232, and the playwright is out here right now, and she and I went out last night after our rehearsal, and we just had this awesome, she's just awesome, she's so smart, and her name's Vanessa Stalling, and um, I was totally like, oh god, I miss Chicago, <laughs> like I miss Chicago theater, because people are just steeped in it yeah um so it wasn't it wasn't about it wasn't a career decision it was a family decision so when my daughter Eloise was born um Ben and I were both freelance artists in Chicago and I was actually the artistic director of Starting Lion the company that I started and we were making a living you know we owned a condo we could afford to go out to dinner. I mean, we had a, a, a nice little living, but when she was born and then suddenly there became this issue of childcare and, you know, in those early years, we didn't want her with any, any or a daycare for, you know, the 10 hours a day that she would have had to be if right. we were both continuing to work at the pace that we had been working at. And Ben had kind of gotten to the point as a musician where he just was like, I don't know that I want to be staying out till three and four o'clock in the morning. And in Chicago, that's what you were doing. You were playing these club gigs. And so we started to think about how are we going to do this next phase of life? And he decided to go back to law school. Not... not, I mean, not back to law school. He decided to go to law school, go back to school. And um, when he was applying, he applied to CU and got in. And my family's out here. So we sort of thought, let's go and see. Let's see how we like living in a different place. And, you know, you you make trade-offs. Chicago is the coolest city to be an artist in. It's not crazy expensive. There's crazy opportunity. Um, but the other aspects of life there are hard, you mm-hmm. know, it's got every bit as bad of weather as you hear about, yeah. you know, mm-hmm. winters last six months and, um, you know, it's, it's big, it's hard to get around. And so we just, when we moved back here, we realized that we could have a lifestyle here that felt a little bit better than the one that we were having in Chicago, but man, I miss it. So when you got here, what did you do? Mm. How did you go from just moving back mm. to starting the Catamounts? It's mm. such a good question. It was a little bit of a rough transition. Like I actually, in, in some respects, feel like I didn't do it exactly right, but hindsight's always twenty twenty. You know, Ben was in law school. My daughter was 18 months when we moved back here. Wow. We had no money. So 
I first started kind of trying to figure out what I could do just in Boulder. Farmers markets, no. <laughs> yeah, right, exactly, right. <laughs> Have a show with put that. Out, yeah, put on a hat on Pearl Street. <laughs> no, I actually, you know, I got the my in my first year in town, I was actually continuing to run the company that I had run in Chicago as we were sort of trying to transition it into new leadership. So I was continuing to do some work. Does it still exist in Chicago? It just now doesn't, but it lasted about 16 years, wow. which feels, I that makes me super proud. Yeah, but that seems like a long time. It was a long time, especially because what we were doing was really super experimental. The truth is, is that collaborating across disciplines is hard. Right. We have very different processes. We have yeah. different, expect, I mean, musicians just like basically don't want to rehearse. You know, like, <laughs> theater artists are like, we have drawers constantly, you know. Dancers, there's a certain technical level that's required. And sometimes as a result of being a really technical dancer, you're not such a good actor or singer. And so, you know, I mean, yeah. there just was a lot of kind of, we had some really fantastic pieces and some really less than fantastic pieces. So, <laughs> uh, but which is okay. Like, I so think that that's what, I mean, when you experiment, there, right. there just has to be room for failure. Sure. Yeah. But anyway, so I I reached out to, I got a little bit involved with the Fringe Festival. I taught for a Boulder-based kids sort of arts organization. Anyway, just my first couple forays were, I had a really hard first year. Like, yeah. I was like, this is not where I'm going to thrive. And I'm sure part of that, too, is just what so many women, mothers especially, <sighs> go through. It's like, it's a huge shakeup of your identity. Yes. Like, from the ground up. Yes. And... So then to move on top of that, I bet that was very yeah. challenging. Well, especially because, I mean, I'm just now getting back to the income level that I made when I was an artist in Chicago in my early 30s, like a decade later. It took me a decade to build back up to that. and wow. That's hard. It is. But, you know, the cool thing is, is that, you know, out of adversity sometimes is when you just and um, I got to the end of that first year after a couple of really challenging, like, just kind of meeting some artists whom I did not jive with and just really sitting down and kind of being like, oh, man, what, what am I going to do? And in retrospect, I kind of wish I had gone further into Denver because I think I would have found more of my people in Denver. But instead, I just thought, I had directed for this company in Chicago called Strange Tree, and they mainly did the work of this playwright, Emily Schwartz, which is, again, like, kind of almost like macabre. She called what she did Midwestern Gothic. So it was sort of like this very, almost like fairy tale, but dark fairy tales done in this like very whimsical but hilarious way. And I had directed a play out there called The Dastardly Ficus and Other Comedic Tales of Woe. And she had written another play called Mr. Spacky, The Man Who Was Continuously Followed by Wolves. And so I thought, you know what? I'm just going to do an Emily Schwartz play out here. I'm going to write a grant. I'm going to hold an open audition. I'm going to call the producing entity The Catamounts because my company in Chicago is called Striding Lion. We always joked that whatever I started here would be called Mountain Lion. So I went and looked for other words for Mountain Lion, and I wanted it to be something I liked to say because I hated stay, saying Striding Lion. I did not want to name that company Striding Lion. Oh, that's funny. But then I loved saying the Catamounts, 
and we did this production and it how'd you find a space is that an issue yes it's a total issue and i could barely afford anything so we found (laughs) this old funky church called the wesley chapel and they had a, a couple lighting instruments you know they were letting theater companies rent it and it was a huge hit. Like, we sold the whole run out. And wow. people were just kind of like, what is this? But in the best way, you know, in the How best long, way. How long, like, from the time you had that idea to the time it actually, like, went on, what was the time frame? It was about six months. Because that seems like such a long time to be invested in something and get people you don't even know invested yeah. in something. yeah. Yeah, I mean, it was... So, I mean, that's really... It is very brave. It was... But, you know, it's funny. I, You know, it just... I mean, I was really not in a good place because I just thought, oh, my God, I gave up this whole life in Chicago where... And it was interesting because right around the time I left, which was, you know, in my mid-30s, some of my contemporaries, like, really started to kind of blow up. Like, they started to get bigger opportunities. And I just sort of had this sense of, like, I made a mistake. Yeah. And I held it very lightly. I was like, I'm just going to do this thing, and I'm going to start this company, but I'm not going to be... Like, I didn't have a board of directors for a whole year because I wasn't sure. You know, I just wasn't sure. But then the lead actress and and Mr. Spackey came to me like a month after and she was like, I need to talk to you. And I was like, this is weird. Why does she, she was like, I really need to talk to you. And she came and I'll never get it. We sat in my backyard and she said, please form a company. All I want to do is this kind of work. I haven't felt like that as an actor and an artist in a long time. And so I was like, okay, great. You're a part of the company. <laughs> I, just, you know, I just had no plan. And then we'll have I, t-shirts made. Right, too, exactly. Right. And then I'll never forget. I put, you know, I sent out an email and I was like, okay, the company is me and my husband and Sonia, this woman who was like, can I be a part of the company? <laughs> and then another actor who had been in the production was like, well, why is she in the company and I'm not in the company? And I was like, you're in the company. Okay. <laughs> so so the, the start of it was sort of this kind of organic thing. And it really was just in response to, to saying this is kind of putting a, a, I don't know, a flag in the sand. Is that an expression? Or yeah. just saying like, okay, this is, this is an example of what we might do. Was the success organic? Did it just kind of grow word of mouth? Or did you do a lot of advertising? Yeah. How do you um, grow a company? Yeah. How do you grow a company? (laughs) I'm still very much trying to figure that out. Yeah. I mean, I think that one of the things that I think has been part of the Catamount success and its growth is that we are doing work that no one else is doing. Mm -hmm. And it's work that, um, you know, a lot of our audience doesn't go see other theater because it doesn't speak to them, mm-hmm. right? Like, yeah. they don't want to see a living room play. Sure. You know, and they come see our stuff. And I I hope, I think, that in the audience survey feedback that we've gotten is, you know, they want to see something different. They want to be, you know, exposed to work that's really imaginative and intrepid. But, yeah, it's been pretty organic. I mean, I, you know, we don't do a ton of advertising. It's a lot of word of mouth, a lot of word of mouth. And I think it's really cool that people might get exposed to theater by doing things locally because I have to say now it's like, it's so 
expensive to go to a big production things that everyone should see you know like Hamilton and Wicked and all those things it's like it becomes like a few times Mm -hmm. in a lifetime maybe experience for a lot of people Mm -hmm. which is unfortunate because they're missing out on that experience Mm -hmm. of just suspending belief and and being in space with other people I mean yeah and, and, and not only with other people, but also with the artists. I mean, you can go see a movie and you're in the audience right, with other people, but you're all witnessing something that's, you know, essentially two-dimensional. And I think right now when we spend such massive amounts of time in front of screens, like there's something really crazy about, not crazy, but just sort of unprecedented like we don't spend a lot of time we don't go to church most of us anymore we don't yeah we don't spend time kind of in that sort of community um so yeah so i i do think local theater is important and i think it it traffics in ideas that are presented in a way that books and film and television can't so it's both the kind of the medium of being in that live space but also sort of the way that you can storytell in theater is unique and it does different things to the brain you know so mm-hmm. where do yeah. you find your pieces that's a great that question that seems really hard that seems to me it would be the biggest challenge yeah it is it is um so and who all has to kind of get buy-in within the company yeah how democratic is that process i love these questions y'all ask good questions um <laughs> so uh, a lot of it as much as facebook is problematic i'm still you know, friends on there with colleagues from Chicago. So I follow a lot of what the folks I out there whom I admire, I follow what they're producing and directing and performing in or recommending, you know, mm-hmm. Facebook is this place where when people really love plays, they go post about it. And so, you know, if enough of the people out there that I admire are like pointing towards a piece, I mean, that's how this current piece that we're doing, uh, United Flight 232, which is a, it's a, actually a true story about a DC-10 that took off from Stapleton and crash landed in Sioux City, Iowa. Um, and the woman who adapted it for the stage adapted it from a, a book that was essentially built on first-person accounts of the mm-hmm. crash because 184 people survived, even though out of the 296. Oh, wow. Yeah, and it's kind of this... Um, sort of legendary uh, tale in aviation because the pilots just did some amazing things to save the plane. And then after the crash, a lot of the passengers did some amazing things to save each other. Oh, wow. Um, I've never even heard of it. Yeah, yeah. It was in 1989, so it's almost a 30-year-old crash. But the cool thing is, is that for us, it's our first piece that's a that's a, about a true story. How are you um, making that unique and non-traditional? Well, the, the, the woman, Vanessa Stalling, who adapted it, she adapted it to be told by nine actors who play several different parts, including the pilots and the flight attendants and the passengers. Um, and the whole thing we're just telling with chairs and video projection. And it kind of comes in and out of the moments in the plane and the kind of the memories of, of what happened afterwards. So it's, you know, again, it's not it's not told like a you wouldn't have film where it would be sort of realism it's it's about High the, drama yeah yeah it's not an action flick it's more about kind of coalescing all of the stories in a way to remind us that that in each of us is this real 
um, responsibility, sense of responsibility of, about taking care of our fellow person. So anyway, That's saw that cool. one on Facebook, you know, and oh, yeah. I just reached out to her and she's married to somebody that I directed a piece of his in Chicago. And so he kind of vouched for me and, um, the, the piece that we did, um, in the fall, which actually I guess was based on a true story as well. It was called men on boats and it's a, an adaptation of John Wesley Powell's journals about, um, he was the first white explorer to successfully make it down the Colorado river through the grand Canyon. Um, but all of the 10 explorers who were on that journey are played by, they were all white men and they're played by not white men. So we had a cast of racially diverse women playing the roles. That's oh, interesting. Cool. Found out about that one on Facebook. So, cool. you know, you just yeah. sort of pay attention and we get our hands on scripts. Um, Sonia, that woman I told you about who was the first person who was like, could I be a company member? Uh, she doesn't live in Colorado anymore. Um, her husband is an ER doc and got a job in Texas. So, but she reads scripts for me because I just don't have enough time to read every single thing. Right. And she passes along to me what, you know, she's like, this is a catabouts piece. And then oh, I read it cool. and then we bring it to the company and then the company reads it out loud. And, um, and if we like it, then we produce it. And it's kind of funny cause we're always sort of talking about, um, what it makes a catamounts piece. And one of my company members, Joan has this great anecdote about the Miami, right? Miami vice writers, Oh, do you guys remember that show? Yeah, I do. 80s? I was going to say, are you talking about the original? Yeah. Yeah. They, they remade it, Oh, right? that's right. That's right. No, the original television okay. series. And apparently there's this story from the writer's room that they would be like, oh, yeah, that's Vice. Or like, <laughs> that's not Vice. That's not Vice. So now we've had a joke about like, what's Vice and not Vice, you know, oh, like funny. sort of saying like, that feels like a catamount's piece that, you know, that doesn't. Yeah. It's like pornography, the definition. Totally. Yeah. I know when I see it. Yeah. <laughs> totally. I think I've actually used that that's metaphor. That's porn. Yeah, that's porn. <laughs> that's definitely not porn. Do you always um, have the same actors? We have a company of actors who, you know, that like, for instance, one of the, the actors in this piece has been probably in 12 of the 17 pieces that we've done. We try to uh, expand beyond that. So we ha- our company appears in a lot of our pieces, but they are by no means the only actors that we feature. And we've also really tried to diversify our casts. You know, for a long time, we were just doing shows with white people, and that felt really bad. <laughs> yeah. So we have really made a, a concerted effort to cast diversely. And actually, this year... 40% of the actors who are in our shows are non-white actors. Mm. So, Is that a challenge to find that in yeah, Boulder, Colorado? Well, a lot of our actors come from Denver. Really? Yeah. Mm. I mean, part of the bummer about Boulder is that, you know, it's a hard place to live as an artist. Yeah. But fortunately, we, you know, compensate in a way that is competitive with other small theaters. So folks are willing to make the drive up 36 to do our shows. Cool. Yeah. What is your vision for the Catamounts? Oh, yeah, that's such a good... I mean, I would I would like to keep doing what we do, but even better. I'm really in the throes of that conversation right now because we have been sort of steadily growing, like 10 15% every year. The budget gets a little bigger. The audiences get a little bigger. We pay everybody a little bit better. But I think that we're at the point where we need to kind of make a jump. 
Yeah. And not-for-profit theater is tricky, especially when you program like we do, and it's not for everybody, you know? And we want to retain some agility and um, flexibility that will allow us to continue to take risks. We just made our first immersive theater piece, um, and I don't know if y'all are familiar with that, but it's sort of a new movement in theater in which the audience is really integrated into the show. Like, um, yeah, yeah, and that was what Sweet and Lucky, which I directed, I mean, which I was in at the Denver Center, and then I directed an immersive production of The Wild Party, which is a, a musical that's set in the 1920s, and we built an apartment and an airplane hangar down at Stanley Marketplace in Stapleton. And the audience like dressed up. They were like in the apartment. Oh, they were cool. served drinks. The actors were like running and standing on bathtubs and pulling them into closets. And and then we did a piece for the Catamounts called Roush that took place on three acres of open space mm-hmm. where the audience was broken into groups and then like basically hiked through the piece. And it was sort of oh, that's really interesting. It was crazy. It was really interesting, really crazy. And um, did and you lose anybody? Oh no! I think, <laughs> I think everybody came back. You do a little head count. Yeah, yeah. So, so yeah. So, so I want to keep. I want to keep making bold, risk-taking work with better resources. Um, and with bigger audiences, it's like and, a lot of work. It is so much work. I mean, it's so much work. It's so much work. And you have to mom. And I'm a mom. But I don't know. There's, I have a lot of energy for it right now. I think, I don't know how old y'all are, but I, I sort of feel like I hit my 40s and I finally felt like I knew what I was doing. <laughs> yeah. I think that's really common. And you start to start to get to get a little of your life back as yeah. kids become more self-sufficient. Yes. Yes. And I think you're also more aware that they're looking to you as an example. Yeah in a way that feels more real yeah. than when they're little. That's such, I love that point. I you do. Know, I do. And feel like a sense of obligation to yeah. make something happen. Yep. Yes. Yes. And, and or at I least just, try. Yeah. And I just feel up for it right now. I think you're right. Like I'm not in those kind of those baby, baby years where you just feel like you can kind of just do everything you can just to make sure they survive another day you know like because you're still doing all that like feeding and bathing and it's a very labor intensive yeah and it sort of takes some of that brain space away I think like it's such a challenge to be it's a really hard thing to be a mom and a theater artist because it's a low-paying field and childcare is expensive and you know frankly i part of the reason I can do it is I have a higher income earning husband. It would be a much bigger challenge if he wasn't sort of pulling a lot of the financial weight in our situation. And I hate that because that's a privilege that I have and not all artists have that privilege. And I think that the field loses some really great voices when, when people have to drop out because of childcare. Um, So anyway, so I feel I feel, yeah, I, it's it's a lot of work. I need to figure out, I need to get somebody to, to, to help me or to help Mac and I do more of it. But I'm so fed by the work right now that yeah. it, it's amazing how that can kind of generate its own kind of propulsion and forward movement. Well, it sounds like it just kind of feels easy. I mean, it doesn't sound easy, but to you, it feels easy. I think that's 
what the universe is telling you yeah. you should be doing if it feels yeah I mean I wouldn't say it feels easy I definitely get I mean I will at some point in this next 10 days before we open this show be like why am I doing this and my husband will say I mean I will have a dark night of the soul in which I am up at midnight and I can't sleep and I'll wake my husband up and I'll say you know and I'll be anxious as hell and he'll say this happens to you every time and I'll say no this time is different (laughs) and then we'll open and and you know hopefully you know knock on wood it'll it'll be where it needs to be so yeah it's not easy as much as I just really believe in it I just think that there's something um that happens with an audience. We also do this cool thing on Saturday nights after the Countermount shows where we have what's called community meal, um, where we set up two big long banquet tables and the audience and the performers sit down and have a meal together afterwards. It's really cool. It's so cool. And we have audience just tell us that like, it's this really unique experience because they end up talking to strangers, which you know, you never do anymore. You and take everybody's phones. Yeah, right. No, we should, talk, right? We no, should. but people do I mean, it's yeah, really... They're so engrossed in it that they, they just, just feel... Yeah. They've just kind of had an experience together, an artistic experience, and then they go and, you know, I don't know how much they're talking just about the play, but whatever has been kind of opened up in that experience makes them willing to engage with people they don't know, and, and then they have a night with I'm always really curious about the cast members when I watch a show. Yeah. I'm always, who are they? What are I, I always want to talk to them, so that's yeah. cool. Yeah, and yeah, they do. Cool. They like the cast goes and sits down and hangs yeah. out and it is. It's a really So I just I you know, I I'm not curing cancer. I'm not, you know, out there doing some of the really good not-for-profit work, but I just really believe in the power of theater to sort of change the alchemy of a community. Mm -hmm. And um, more than anything, I I hope that the legacy of this company is that the community I live in will be exposed to ideas and to just experiential kind of things that they just never would have if we didn't exist. So, and that somehow that works its way into who they are and how they live their life. I mean, that's a really, <laughs> that's a really lofty kind of conception of what we do. But I actually, actually think that on some level, that's what theater does. I think you're making a difference. Yeah. I think so. Yeah, definitely. So. I hope so. so we always ask our guests, what's mm-hmm. the best piece of advice you've ever gotten? That's an awesome question. Well, I brought her up earlier and I'll have to like not cry thinking about her, but I just had this awesome mentor in college named Harlene Marley and she sort of talked like this like in that very (laughs) sort of theatrical way she she was this neat lady who was very mysterious she was single but she was the first female faculty member at my college because my college was all men all, all male student body and also all male teachers up to about 1969 I've always been a late bloomer. Like I just sort of, even as a college kid, was kind of didn't really know what I was doing. And but I always wanted to go sit in her office because I wanted her to like me. So I was sort of, you know, <laughs> wanting to sort of think, oh, if I go to her office hours, and I was right away contemplating grad school right after undergrad. And uh, she told me, she said, 
I, I wouldn't. She was like, go out and pay some bills for a while and um, take out take out the garbage, your own garbage, you know, because at Kenyon we all lived in dorms that got mysteriously cleaned one day a <laughs> week, you know. And uh, and she's like, and just really spend some time in the world figuring out who you are first before you go further down a path where you're, you know, essentially in, in academia and under the sort of the tutelage of people who've already figured out who they are. And that's kind of like a controversial thing, right? Because we all think like, oh, more education is better. Um, and I, I do think that, you know, graduate school and all of those things, I never went. I maybe should have. But one of the things that did happen to me is as soon as I went out into the world and, and started taking my garbage out, I very quickly figured out who I wanted to be as an artist. And I think if I had come straight out of undergrad, like I wouldn't have... You know, so I think there's a worth to just being in the world and mm-hmm. figuring out who you are as an adult to, and then letting that kind of guide the work you do rather than having your head filled with the kind of work you should be doing, you know? That's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. That's really good advice. Yeah. Well, thank you so much to Amanda for joining us today. And you can learn more about the work of the Catamounts if you check out thecatamounts.org or at Instagram at the Catamounts. And you can find us at womeninadaypodcast.com and on Instagram at womeninadaypodcast and on Facebook. Yes, thank you so much, Amanda. And as always, a huge thank you to our editor, Tony Tarbox. And thanks so much for listening.